Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We're going to begin our lesson this morning, our series uh, for the next few services. And we're going to talk about hope for the last days. How many know that we're in the last days? And I believe that we are closer today than we were yesterday. Without sounding cliche, we are closer to the second coming of the Lord today than we were yesterday, and we are looking forward to him returning. If you would, just join me in the book of Acts this morning, chapter 1, verse 11. We're going to read quite a bit of scripture today, and so uh, if you can't follow along, if you would just uh, write these scriptures down, I admonish you to read these uh, at a later date. Uh, if you're able. Acts 1 and 11, and then we're going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Acts 1 and 11, the Bible says, which also said, this is speaking of two men, angels appearing to the disciples, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, Paul wrote, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And very, very important, verse 18, wherefore comfort one another with these words. And so aren't you thankful for the comfort that we find in his spirit and in his word? And so this morning, we're going to just speak this morning on this subject in like manner. Two angels said that he shall come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. And so we can have hope this morning because Jesus is returning for his people. Now, it's very important when we're teaching or maybe when we're speaking on a particular subject that we begin with a foundation or begin by laying a foundation. It's very important when teaching any subject that you begin with something that would pinpoint the, the subject matter or the subject that we're going to be discussing. And typically in our discipleship project um, lessons, we tend to begin with a story to illustrate a certain point or to illustrate the point of that particular lesson. However, today we're going to be a bit challenged. We're going to be faced with a little bit of a challenge because we're going to be discussing the second coming of Jesus to the earth. 
what we know as the rapture. And so we have no actual accounts of anyone ever going up in the rapture. If we were going to discuss divine healing, we could point to a myriad of circumstances. We could point to myriads of stories of people being miraculously healed by the power of God. If we were going to talk about deliverance or forgiveness of sins, if we were going to talk about holiness or Christ-like character, we could visit countless examples from Old Testament up to this moment that would pinpoint and would illustrate those points in a lesson. We have a literal great cloud of witnesses to all of those things, but the rapture has simply not occurred yet. And so although we cannot tell of actual stories of people going up in the rapture, we can, however, speak to certain similar occurrences for our reference. For example, Scripture tells us of a man by the name of Enoch. The Bible says that he was 365 years old. He was the father of Methuselah who lived upwards of a thousand years, 604 years to be exact, after his father was taken from the earth. Genesis 5 and 24 tells us, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so it's undetermined, it's unknown if Methuselah, his son, ever wondered what happened to his father. It's undetermined if he ever looked for him, if he ever questioned what happened to him. But the Bible does offer some insight as to why Enoch was taken. We find that answer in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5. The Bible says, by faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. But for before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And so Enoch was taken. He was translated because he pleased God. God. However, even further, it is very important to understand what caused this to happen or what caused God to be pleased in Enoch. We read of him in the faith chapter, and so it is by faith and it is because of faith that caused God to be pleased with him and God took him. And so when we're talking about faith and when we're talking about exercising one's faith and one being taken from the earth, Scripture also points to a man by the name of Elijah. He was walking and he was talking to Elisha when the Bible tells us in 2 Kings chapter 2 and 11, and it came to pass as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elijah is not seen again until he appears on the mountain with Jesus in the New Testament. Elisha certainly never sees him again. And so unlike Enoch, we know Elijah was sought out. The sons of the prophets begged Elisha to let them go and search for him. They thought maybe that the Spirit of the Lord had taken him up but cast him upon some mountain or in some valley, 2 Kings 2 and 16. Elijah, in the next verse, refused to give his permission, but the sons of the prophets, they just kept urging until he said, send. 
and the search only lasted three days with no results, and the searchers returned. And Elisha said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? He was taken. I witnessed it. I saw it happen. And so what we can take from these two instances, from Enoch to Elijah, is that there are a few differences in the way both of these men were taken from the earth. First, Enoch was simply not found. No one saw him ascend into heaven, according to the word of God. Yet the Spirit of the Lord revealed to the writer of Genesis that Enoch walked with God and God took him. No one witnessed it. However, Elijah seemed to expect that this would happen to him. And Elijah and Elisha was witness. 2 Kings 2, 9 through 10 tells us. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said something very, very interesting. And he said, thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And so Elijah was a prophet. God would speak to him directly. And so perhaps this was revealed somehow unto him. Yet for all intent and purposes, Enoch had no Bible and had no direct communication with God for what we know. So he would have no specific revelation of what would happen to him. He just walked with God. And that would indicate that he, 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 he had trust in God. He had trust that no matter what, God would take care of him. This pleased God, and he simply took him and spared him from the life to come. So there are differences in the experiences that these two men had, yet the similarity is what we must focus on today. The similarity is what is important. The important part of all of this is that both of these men displayed faith. One walked, one anticipated, but both believed. Even Jude alluded to the fact that Enoch prophesied of a coming day when the Lord would return and judge the earth. But both of these men had no knowledge of when, but they displayed faith that it would happen. And because of this, both of these men experienced something from another world. Hear me today. Make no mistake. These things did happen. They did come to pass. And hear me again. They will happen again. But this time it will be of global proportions and there will be no mistake that Jesus is returning. Jesus is coming again. And he's going to do it because he said he would. Jesus promised that he would return. You see, after he rose from the dead, Luke 24 and 50, the Bible says he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. 
And it came to pass while he blessed him, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Luke reiterated this to his second treatise to Theophilus in Acts 1 and 1 through 2. He said, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. And so after his resurrection, Jesus showed himself alive to his apostles for 40 days. He gave them commandments. He relayed and he revealed very, very important information to them. And he commanded them to tarry in the city of Jerusalem until they be endued with power from on high. He promised them the infilling of the Holy Ghost, and it came to pass. And Luke reiterated what transpired again in Acts 1, 9 through 11. It's very important when the Bible states something more than one time, over and over and over, that begs our attention. The Bible says, Acts 1 and 9, and when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. And so let's think about this for a moment. Let's just pause right here and let's think about a very important fact. Enoch was not. Elijah, the Bible says, was taken away. And Jesus was taken up. Now hear me now. The Bible is not based on hearsay. It's not based on second-hand knowledge. It's based on and grounded on irrefutable evidence and a sure foundation. It is no coincidence that most biblical truths are stated, reiterated, and restated. Hear me now. They're stated, they're reiterated, and they are restated. The reason for this is that it is typical that three instances or examples or occurrences are recorded to establish a biblical truth, a foundation of truth. And so is it any wonder that we are gathered here today going over very three very examples of an extremely similar event to point to a future promise. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm here to tell you this this word says it's going to happen and because it says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And so is it any wonder that we have three instances where people are taken from the earth to point to a future promise? I certainly don't think that it's in coincidence. These things did happen. And there is no reason not to believe that they will happen again because Jesus is most definitely returning and he is going to return to those who are eagerly anticipating his return. He 
will return to the earth and we will in like fashion be taken from this earth to be with him. He is coming in like manner as the disciples saw him go, both visibly and in person. Sometime between A.D. 63 and 65, Paul wrote a letter to a young pastor by the name of Titus. He was instructing him how the church in Crete should conduct themselves. And he wrote to them reminding him that salvation is, Titus 3 and 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. However, in the chapter before, shortly before this statement, Paul designs and defines the mark of the Christian church. Titus 2, 11 through 13. He said, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Hear me, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We should pay attention to this point just as much as we pay attention to the others. Because Jesus promised his return, and he promised to return for his church. That means we ought to look for his appearing. And so just as important as denying ungodliness and worldly lust, and just as imperative as living soberly and righteously, and just as paramount as living godly in this present world, so is looking for that returning of Jesus to this earth. Paul said it's simply not an option. He placed it in lineage with everything that we believe. We ought to be separated. We ought to come out from among them and we ought to be separate, saith the Lord. But added to that, we ought to look for his appearing. We ought not live like we're just going to set up shop on this earth for the duration and nothing else is going to happen. But we ought to look for his return. You see, what he was saying is in order to be a true Christian, we must believe, and if we believe, we ought to live like we believe. If we believe that Jesus is returning, we ought to live like he's returning. It ought to be outward. It ought to be unashamed, and it should be intentional. Would somebody say amen? And so Paul was saying we ought to live ready. We ought to live on the razor's edge of being ready. This becomes apparent with what Jesus told his disciples on the Mount of Olives. In in what is widely known as the Olivet Discourse, Jesus spoke at length about future events and specifically about his second coming. Now, there's been a lot of debate, a lot of debate about the precise order of these events. There's been a lot of debate. And although it may be difficult 
to interpret all the subtle nuances of what Jesus' words really meant, what is quite clear in the context of Scripture is his declaration that he will return after these things happen. Matthew 24 and 30, Jesus said, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. If we drop down to 36, he said, But of that day and hour, no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Verse 44, Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Mark 13 and 33, parallel scripture. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh at even or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Mark 14 and 62, Jesus said, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And so when we think about these words, when we think about what he said, we realize very quickly that he established three very definite, definitive truths. One, Jesus is coming Again, no one knows when he will return, and he is the Christ, the promised Messiah. And so we could do ourselves a total disservice, fretting over the timing and the chronology of details. Rather than fretting over those timings and the chronology of details, believers should simply do what Titus 2 and 13 says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He said he was coming. I believe it, and I'm going to look for it. I'm not trying to figure out what date and what hour so I can spend my time doing other things so I can just be ready when he shows up, but I want to be ready right now. If he walks through the door right now and calls us all home, I want him to find me working. I want him to find me believing. So before and after his crucifixion, Jesus asserted that point. That no one knows the date. And no one knows the time. But the fact is that his return is sure. In the book of Acts chapter 1 and 6 the Bible says, when they therefore were come together, they asked him, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Now, to the disciples, this event was the ultimate end-all event. It would usher in the true kingdom of God upon the earth. 
I believe that Jesus is returning. I believe that he is going to set up a kingdom on earth, and he's going to rule and reign for a millennia. And if we are ready, we can rule and reign with him. So Jesus didn't deny that event. However, in the next verse, he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Now, the Apostle Paul also wrote to the church at Thessalonica and spoke to this point as well. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 2. But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. He alluded to the pointlessness of attempting to determine the exact timing of the event. However, In verses 3 through 6, Paul provides some insight into the temperature or the atmosphere surrounding this time. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3 through 6, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. This is what Paul was saying. We don't know the day and we don't know the hour, and it is absolutely futile for you to try to figure out when that's going to happen. These people that are living in the world and doing their own thing, that day is going to come upon them like a thief in the night. It's going to catch them off guard. It's going to catch them by surprise. They're not going to know what's what's going on and what's happening. But you, you are not in darkness. You are in the light. And so that day will not be a surprise to you. That day will not be a surprise to those who are looking for that day to occur. It will not be something that catches us off guard who are anticipating his soon return. So in the letter that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, he was attempting to correct abuses of the Lord's Supper. He related something that the Lord had had revealed unto him, or what he called he had received of the Lord. And what he received revealed that the Lord's Supper was intended to look back to Christ's crucifixion, but also forward to his coming. 1 Corinthians 11 23, for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup Is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the the Lord's death till he come. So what we did last week was not some ritual. What we did last week was not something that we just do to pass time. 
But what we were doing last week when we took communion here in this building is that we were looking back to the crucifixion of the Lord and we were remembering the sacrifices that he made on Calvary for our sins. But at the same time, we were looking forward into the future for his sure return. You see here, Paul quoted the actual words of Jesus, giving his divine authority for a specific understanding of and the purpose for reenacting the Lord's Supper. In that, the bread reminds us of Christ's body. The cup reminds us of Christ's blood. The cup and its contents signify the establishment of the new covenant and, by implication, the ending of the old covenant. See Hebrews 7, 8, 10 in those chapters. And also that the Lord's Supper is to be celebrated until the Lord's return. And so when we are taking the Lord's Supper and when we are enacting the Lord's Supper, we are looking back to the future, but we are also looking forward to his next return to this earth. But something that we must be aware of today, something that we must put in the forefront of our minds today is a subject that no one wants to talk about, especially me. And this is why. Because we don't know the hour, and because we don't know the day, there is something that we all must be aware of. Although we are earnestly looking for that blessed hope, although we are earnestly looking ahead for the returning of the Lord, we must become aware of an inevitable event in each of our lives if the Lord so choose to tarry beyond our lifetime. Hebrews 9 and 27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And so if the Lord extends his second coming past our lifetime into another generation, we have to become aware of the prospect of death. Yet the prospect of death should never strike fear in our heart. It should never strike fear in the heart of a believer. The reason for this is those who die, remember, we started out with faith. For those who die in faith are those, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, who sleep in Jesus, will rise from death when the Lord himself descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And they will meet the Lord in the air, followed by the people of faith who are still living at Christ's return. And so like Enoch and like Elijah, perhaps different experiences, but the same outcome. If we will live in faith, we can die in faith if the Lord so choose to tarry, and we can rise in faith to meet him in the air. And so even in the face of death, we can comfort one another with these words. We can comfort one another with these words that he is going to return. This comfort is expressed as we stay focused on that blessed hope as we eagerly await for him to appear the second time apart from sin for salvation. And so death is simply not the end. It is not the reality for those who live and die in faith. It is only 
the beginning. It is only the beginning. Why don't we lift our hands right here and why don't we thank him for that hope, for the calling. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your word, Lord. We bless your holy name. And so as we noted at the beginning of this lesson, there's certainly no stories that we can account for to tell of people who have been actually raptured in the rapture. But we are, we are given glimpses throughout Scripture. In fact, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4, speaks of one man who definitely had a vision or revelation. Paul said, whether in the body or out of the body, I can't tell. A revelation of being caught up into the third heaven or paradise. And so the scriptures says that he could not account for any details. He was not able. He heard words that could not be uttered by man. But these types of shared experiences, these glimpses in scripture give us experience to keep the prospect of his returning in the forefront. However, because of this, there have been many attempts to set dates for the second coming of Christ. These efforts began soon after the end of the first century. They have continued up to this very moment. I get, I get all kinds of stuff in the mail. I don't know how they got my name. Of all these conferences that we can go to and figure out when the hour of the day when the Lord's coming. I don't see how you can do that when he emphatically stated, no man knows the date. No man knows the hour. So if you get something like that in the mail, throw it away. It's not biblical. So far, all of those attempts have failed. Perhaps because of this, some have even declared that Jesus has already returned, and that's a subject for another day. Yet some have gone so far out of their theology that they have become unrecognizable as Christianity. And I'll end with this. An interesting and recent account of a group who set a date for the second coming involves a, a group called the Panacea Society. The article that we'll read today was written by a man by the name of Will Bennett, an art sales correspondent, and it was printed in July of 2001 in a British newspaper called The Telegraph. He writes, a religious cult which believes that the second coming of Christ is imminent to sell off art and antiques worth more than 500000 British pounds donated by wealthy supporters. The auction will have the twin advantages for the Panacea Society of complying with charity commission rules and readying its headquarters for what is believed will be Jesus' return to earth. Society follows the teachings of a woman by the name of Joanna Southcott and seven other British prophets who predicted Christ's return. Southcott became convinced that she was to give birth to a Messiah known as the Shiloh who would herald the end of the world in which only 144,000 of her followers would be saved. She died in 1814 without the child having made an appearance but still has her supporters including a dwindling band of elderly members of the Panacea Society based in Bedford. John Coghill, treasurer of the society, said, We believe that Bedford was the site of the original Garden of Eden and it was here that Eve was deceived by Satan. And Bedford will be the site of the second coming. The society believes that the second coming will occur 6,000 years after God created Adam and Eve. And it dates the creation to 4,000 B.C. 
in order to prepare the society, bought two Victorian houses in Bedford during the 1920s and 30s. Wealthy supporters came to live a communal existence at the two houses, donating all their money to the society in return for an allowance and leaving their possessions to the organization and their wills. As a result, the society acquired paintings, furniture, silver clocks, and other antiques now valued at more than 500,000 British pounds. With membership in the Bedford area down to just 25, of whom only a handful live communally, the society has decided that the time has come to sell most of its treasures. The collection is so large that W.H. Peacock of Bedford will hold the auction over five days. And Mr. Coghill said one reason for the sale was that the Charity Commission had warned the society that because it was doing nothing with the collection, it was not fulfilling its charitable aims. But the sale will have another advantage for the society, which believes that the opening of Southcott's sealed box of writings, which is in its possession, will take place just before the return of Christ. The problem is that society stipulates that the box can only be opened in the presence of 24 Church of England bishops who have to study its contents for seven days and nights. One of its houses, Castleside, was designated as a place where the bishops would stay but it was so full of art and antiques that there was no room for them. The auction will hopefully clear space for these ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical visitors in the unlikely event that they ever will attend. And so we're not surprised, this was written in 2001, that the Panacea Society was simply not successful in setting a date for the second coming. In fact, the society dissolved as a religious organization with the passing of the last member in 2012. And so we know by Jesus' own words that no one knows his return. And so if we try to predict the day and the hour in which Jesus will return, I believe that we would do ourselves a certain injustice. First and foremost, it would be an act of absolute futility. But more than that, we would rob ourselves of the joy and the anticipation of expectation. Hear me today. God did not present us with a scientific challenge or a code to break when he said he would return. In fact, he didn't give us a scientific challenge or a code to break in, throughout his whole word. It's just his word. It's just his word. He didn't give us a code to break. He didn't give us some wild goose chase to go on. No, God gave us a hope and an assurance, something that we can hold on to in every situation that we come against and encounter. It is the promise of his sure return to the earth. And if I can just use a carnal word here for just a second, the fun in all of this is the faith. Do you agree with that? The fun in all of this is the faith that we can have in Him. And this is why. Because as we walk with Him and as we learn of Him, we will find that there are other promises in this book that have already come to pass. And so if He said that it was going to happen, we can bank on it. It's going to happen. The Bible says that he daily loadeth me with benefits and so daily as I walk with him and as I learn of him, I learn that he is a promise 
keeper. And so this only solidifies and brings into the forefront and the attention of that final act when that eastern sky will give way to the greatest event in human history. As the clouds roll back and in like manner as he left this earth, Jesus Christ will appear coming in the clouds with great glory. And so like Enoch, let's just walk with God. And like Elijah, let's just believe his word and let's live in faith and let's let God take us into our future in Jesus' name. Would you stand and would you lift your hands to heaven and would you praise him and magnify him for the promises that he has given. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the promise of your sure return. We are looking for it, God. We are anticipating it. We are eagerly anticipating it, Lord. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.